One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi there, listeners of the History of Byzantium. I'm Sam Hume, the host of Pax Britannica. I met Robin at Sand Education, and we clung to each other as islands of Britishness in a world of tipping 20 different barbecue sauces and funny money. And as podcasters tend to do when we're in the same room, we talked about our podcasts. Now, I've been a listener of the History of Byzantium for years, so I knew that I was interested in his show. What was a lovely surprise was that Robin was interested in mine, and he invited me on to talk about it. Pax Britannica is the history of another of the world's great and powerful empires, the British Empire. The narrative began in the reign of James VI and I. Since then, we've covered the early years of colonisation. We've seen the first steps of the English East India Company, which would one day conquer a continent. We've seen first James, and now his son Charles, struggle with religious upheaval. And on the horizon, we have political struggles, bloodshed, regicide, and civil war, all of which would not be out of place on the show you're listening to right now. If any of that sounds interesting to you, you can find Pax Britannica everywhere you find good podcasts. Thanks again to Robin for giving me the chance to speak to you. Now, let the piano overture begin. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 197, Anna Komnini with Leonora Neville. Next week we return to the narrative with Alexius Komnenos seizing power amidst the post-Manzikert chaos. Our primary, primary source for Alexius's reign is the history which his daughter Anna composed after his death. The Alexiad is a traditional Greco-Roman history with battles and court scenes and intrigue and everything you'd expect to read. But it's unusual for two obvious reasons. One is that it's written by a member of the imperial family and the child of an emperor at that. And second is that it's written by a woman. There have been times when emperors have got somewhat involved in the business of producing history, we believe that Constantine VII, Porfirogenitos, commissioned the biography of his grandfather Basil I, cleaning up that whole business about sleeping and murdering his way to the top. But this is a step closer, with Anna essentially writing a biographical history of her father's reign. That title, the Alexiad, makes it clear that her father, rather than, say, the Roman state, is the central character of her story raising obvious questions about her objectivity. More amazing, though, is the fact that Anna, a woman, wrote and published this history. 
This was unprecedented in Roman civilization. Those of you who've listened to the Byzantine story on women in the Roman world will know the formidable barriers standing in her way. To discuss those, Anna and the Alexiad in general, I spoke to Professor Leonora Neville of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Professor Neville is a Byzantine historian specializing in 10th to 12th century gender and culture. She's written several excellent books on Byzantine subjects, including, of course, one on Anna Komnini. For students, I would thoroughly recommend her Guide to Byzantine Historical Writing, which is an invaluable resource for guiding you through the various uh, Roman history writers. And her book on gender in Byzantium is excellent and very accessible as well. Uh, If you prefer to listen, then you can hear her being interviewed by Anthony Caldellis on his new podcast, Byzantium and Friends. And that's a great discussion on gender in Byzantium, and they talk a little bit about Procopius and Theodora and all that good stuff. I know uh, I've been gone a while for those of you who are listening live, so I thought maybe you'd need a little reminder of the last piece of our narrative um, I'm sure you remember Manzikert and how Romanos Theogenes was blinded on the orders of the Emperor Michael Dukas. Well, Michael was eventually overthrown by the aging general Nicephorus Votaniates, but the rest of the Dukas family were kept in place, including Michael's young son. Alexius was the emperor's senior general and was sent out to fight the Balkan rebel Nicephorus Vurienios. Using Turkish mercenaries, Alexius was victorious and blinded Vurienios, and we left the narrative poised there with Alexius about to turn his army on the capital itself. I bring all of this up because Anna was betrothed to two of the men connected to that story, so I thought you might appreciate the reminder of who everyone was before we started. Now, here's the interview. Professor Neville, welcome to the History of Byzantium. Hello. It's wonderful to have you on the show as we approach the reign of Alexius Komnenos. Uh, I want to approach this discussion from uh, two directions, as it were. Uh, One, to look at the Alexiad as a source of history, and the other is to talk about Anna herself and the obstacles she faced, particularly as a woman writing history in Byzantium. I think most listeners have an idea of who Alexius is, and they know that his daughter wrote a history about him, but can you give us a little more biographical information about Anna herself? Um, How old was she while these events were going on, and when would she have sat down to write the Alexiad? And can you tell us about her position in the family and sort of generally what her life would have been like? Sure. Well, Anna was born in 1083, which is just a couple years after her father took power in Constantinople through a very bloody and destructive coup uh, for the city. Um, But she was born in the Imperial Palace in a room that was lined with porphyry marble, uh, which made her an Imperial Royal Purple Princess, of which she was very proud. So she was the first of nine children of Irini Dukiana and Alexis Komnenos. And she was betrothed very shortly after she was born to uh, the son of the previous emperor, Michael VII, whose mother was Maria of Alania. 
And this was strengthening Alexius's really quite precarious state as emperor by more tightly binding his family with the family of that child, which is the Ducasse family. And um, she probably went to live with her future mother-in-law when she was uh, seven or eight years old, which was the norm. Um, and she might have been at that point living in Constantinople, or she might have been living with Maria Valania in one of her estates in, in northern uh, Greece. Uh, however, Maria Valania in 1094 led a revolt or was plotting a revolt against Alexius that got uh, discovered and she was disgraced. And shortly after that time, uh, Anna's fiance, uh, Constantine Dukas, died, probably of natural causes. Um, and certainly her uh, relationship with that family was dissolved um, because of that plot. And then several years later, probably around 1097, she was married to Nikiforos Vrienios, who was the grandson of one of the great generals who led a rebellion that Alexius defeated uh, before he became emperor. So it was the, the son of one of Alexius's great rival families. Um, and again, this marriage was an attempt by Alexius to bring together the fractured, the warring parties of the empire, the different factions who were um, contending in a very bloody and destructive fashion prior to his takeover in 1081. He's trying to knit all these different parties together. And so he married his daughter to the grandson of Nikiforis Vrienios, the elder, who Alexius had um, in the late 1070s, in fact, captured and blinded. Her education probably would have been uh, pretty basic from what her parents intended. So girls of her station were taught how to read the Bible and basic saints' lives and given um, a chance to be literate and to know basic information, but their education wasn't expected to go much beyond basic literacy. Anna, however, seems to have had a great love of learning. And the story that was told in her funeral oration is that she would sneak out at night to find old eunuchs of the palace and get them to teach her ancient Greek so she could study the ancient classics and the, the, uh, the plays and Homer and philosophy and other subjects that were considered far too risque for a young woman of her social station. Um, but she was interested in that stuff. So she's described as studying all night um, and working clandestinely to try to improve her education. And eventually the story goes that her parents relented when they realized she wasn't gonna give up and she was just gonna keep studying and learning. So then they arranged for proper tutors for her so that she could study in the daytime. Um, and I think that might be part of why when it came to her second betrothal, um, they chose Nikiforos Vrenios because he was also a very learned person, really interested in education and um, classical learning. And he wrote an excellent classicizing history that was supposed to be the history of Alexius's reign. And he didn't finish it before he died. Um, but if he's the kind of person who could do that as a mature person, probably when he was a teenager, they could also tell that he was kind of bookish, or at least would be a little more tolerant of having a wife who really liked reading Homer. Um, so I think they were a pretty good match for each other. So Nikiforos and Anna themselves had uh, a bunch of children. Three of them died 
uh, either in infancy or in childhood. They certainly predeceased Anna, and three survived. One daughter, Irini, and then a son, Alexius, and another son, John. Anna and Nikiforus set up their own household, and it's described as a great meeting place for scholars and scientists, and that it was a place where everyone could go to learn and enjoy the fruits of learning. And Anna is described as writing beautiful letters that would be very formal, long, um, classicizing Greek letters with a lot of important, uh, interesting philosophical content. None of those letters survive. She's also described as commissioning commentaries on Aristotle and writing a lot of philosophical commentaries on her own. It, none of those survived and it might, it's not clear how much writing she did outside of the Alexiad. The Alexiad is described in her funeral oration as just a very small minor part of her intellectual life. So for us, it's the big surviving work and it's huge and it's long and it's very impressive. But for her contemporaries, it was just a little tiny bit of a much larger intellectual world that's both mostly lost to us now um, because the texts haven't survived. And we prize the Alexiad because it gives us a good impression about history and it lets us know what happened. And our thirst for understanding this period of the Crusades means that we really prize this as a history, whereas her ideas about Plato and Homer and Aristotle that she was writing to her intellectual friends were not things that people decided to save in a collection, at least a collection that we have. Mm. Well, uh, it's, a, it's a great shame we don't have more of her work and we just focus on the Alexiad, but <laughs> that is where we are. Can you tell us more about it? Was this a, a fairly typical Roman history and mm -hmm. is it well written? What What's it like stylistically and do we know why she wrote it? Well, it's a very uh, interesting history. In some ways, it's completely typical and in some ways, it's unlike anything else that we have. And the reason for that is that when she's writing stories about politics and war, uh, which is the main body of her work, almost all of it is a political narrative of things that happened, things that Alexius did and experienced in the, the wars that he fought and the things that his enemies did to try to counter him. And for that, she's able to very carefully mimic the style of classicizing Greek history. So the Greek style is something that anybody who has good classical Greek can read without any real difficulty. Um, it's a, a little bit different, but the uh, vocabulary and the grammar is very much classical Greek. And the style of describing things is pretty much a standard classicizing historical narrative. Every once in a while, she interrupts this story to weep and wail and cry because she's just described the death of her brother or the death of her fiance, or for some other reason, she stops doing history and begins to switch into a really different kind of writing, which is a writing which describes a woman in mourning. The beginning and the end of the history are also bookmarked by a huge outpouring of grief for Alexius. So rhetorically, she makes the reason that she's talking um, a, a funeral oration. Right? She makes this whole book a monument to Alexius's greatness that is prompted by her own grief. 
And these parts are, of course, unlike anything else in history, because one of the hallmarks of a good historian was that he would be able to control his emotions enough to give you a dispassionate history. And the historian's emotional control and ethical upstanding nature is the reason why you can trust that he's telling you the truth and not telling you what you want to hear or telling you what would get him another job or be helpful for advancing his career, right? So you can trust the veracity of the history because you trust the character of the historian, which is shown by being um, dispassionate, right? Um, and Anna is a woman, right? And women are not supposed to be speaking in that kind of voice because they are assumed to be subject to passion. So um, when she's doing this um, crying discourse, this lamentation, that's where she's really acting like a woman. So I think we'll be discussing later how this is part of her strategy for creating a presentation that would allow her to be seen as both a good woman and a good historian. But when you ask the basic question, what is this history like? If you're coming at it, initially, it's very strange because you're hit with this description of this woman in deep, overblown expressions of mourning and sadness. And then the dial flips and it turns into a regular history. And the regular history is like a regular history that everyone can understand and is very standard. Then every once in a while, the dial gets flipped back to, oh, woe is me, and I, I. Uh, and then it's back to history again. So in terms of the content, it's long, it's 15 books, it's hundreds of pages long. It's very detailed. There's more detail on some wars than on others. There are periods in which the narrative goes really pretty quickly because she didn't really have that much information or she didn't want to talk about those wars. And then there are other situations in which it's very detailed um, and gives us a lot of information. There are many events for which um, she's the only source. So we know about things because of the way that she's describing them, though most of what she's talking about is backed up by other sources. And we can see that it's a more detailed version of stories we know happened um, from other historians and other types of records. So on the whole, as a history, it's of extremely high quality in terms of trying to figure out what happened. And as a read, it's really an interesting, unusual book that's not much like anything else. Mm. As for why she wrote it, yeah, um, I think she's got two main points. I mentioned already that her husband wrote a history of Alexius that was supposed to be the beginning part of his reign and go all through it. He, he died um, before he was able to finish that history. That history describes Alexius in a very negative way. It makes Alexius seem craven and um, not upstanding and not uh, forthright and kind of brutal and a little bit like a nasty tyrant type of person. Um, and it makes a case that Nikiforos's grandfather would have been a much better emperor. So I think one of the reasons why Anna wanted to write was it's basically a refutation of what her husband had said. Right? He had sort of trashed Alexius's reputation, and she was trying to rehabilitate her father and say he was really a great ruler. The other reason I think she was writing it was talking about the reign of Alexius, uh, which is 1081 to 1118. Um, 
in a much later era, she's writing as a mature woman in the 1140s and 1150s. We're not sure when she died. Uh, we're not exactly sure when the Alexiad was written. But it seems in a lot of ways to respond to the controversies that arose in the passage of the Second Crusade through Constantinople. So the Second Crusade um, is happening in 1147, 1149, 1150. And in that era, there was a lot of tension in the capital about whether we should be working to help the crusade as the, the Roman Empire. Um, should Constantinople be allied with the crusaders or should Constantinople be maintaining their more traditional alliances with different Turkish groups and different Arab groups and whoever's best in terms of sheer geopolitics to help Constantinople. And this is a live debate. And Anna is making a case in her book that you should not ally with the Westerners, that you can find good allies among Muslims um, and you should find staunch allies and take care of the best interests of the Roman Empire and not worry about these people who are saying that we should all be fighting the Muslims together because we're all Christians, right? And there was a fundamental shift in the policies of the medieval Roman empire to go from like the medieval Roman empire is God's empire and whosoever on our side is on our side, right? Um, to one in which all of the Christians should be fighting all of the Muslims, right? Uh, because of religious uh, differences. And that was a, a new idea that came with the Crusades. And some people in Constantinople found it very appealing and really the, the way to go. And other people deferred and said, no, that's not the way to go. So Anna's case, she makes Alexius seem much more anti-Latin and anti-Western than he, we think he really was based on their sources. Um, and it does a lot to try to portray these uh, Western knights in a, a really bad way and make them look like they're the real enemies of the Roman Empire. So that's two political reasons that would have motivated her to take up her pen and try to write a history. Mm, that's fascinating. And that will inform a huge amount of our coming um, mm -hmm. century of narrative. Um, so given that she was Alexius's daughter, her audience then and ever since are naturally going to question her objectivity. Can you tell us how she tries to combat this criticism, which she would have anticipated, and give us a sense of how she tries to show that she's giving a balanced account of Alexius's reign? She's very concerned that we see her as impartial. Classical Roman history and classical Greek history was deeply concerned that the author not show a bias in favor or against any of the characters. That's slightly different from our modern notion of objectivity, right? Um, the objective history is one that gets all the places absolutely right in the correct perspective. The worry that Anna had that she shared with the classical historians was about whether or not she'd be perceived as partial, meaning is the historian in favor of this character or that character, that would be a problem because that would distort the truth of the history. So she insists in several different places of the history that she understands that in history, you have to be impartial. That's the law of history and she's gonna uphold this history. She also acknowledges, you all are gonna think that I am partial to my father because he's my father and I'm writing about my dad. 
right? Um, and she says, I understand that, but, but I'm not going to do it. So she's keenly aware that everyone is, is the, uh, the impression is going to be that she is uh, partial to her, her father and writing a biased history. She has another problem, though. She's got the problem of showing that she's impartial. She's also, again, a woman and a daughter. And one of the worst things in her society that a daughter could be was not loyal to her father and not loyal to her family. So when you read descriptions of really great women, they're praised for their devotion to their families and particularly to their parents. Right? Um, and the devotion and care and respect and obedience to your family was an absolutely key virtue for women. So if she follows through on the historical imperative to tell us all about Alexius's mistakes and his problems, then she's going to be a lousy daughter. And if she's a bad daughter, she's a bad person. And if she's a bad, immoral person, why should you believe her history anyway? Right? Remember that your guarantee that your history that you're reading is sound is that you trust the character of the historian is good, that this isn't a person who's going to be lying to you. So she really can't just say, I'm writing about my dad, but I don't care. I'm going to trash talk him and say anything that I want to get the truth out right, in a plain, open, raw way, because then she's looking like a horrible person and therefore a bad historian. So she's really caught in a double bind. Um, and though she deals with it in a number of different ways throughout the history, it's sort of like a, a running problem that she returns to again and again. One of the things that she does is she'll tell us a story about Alexius losing, Alexius making bad choices, getting caught, getting beaten up. And she'll tell that story in a way that makes him look through the rhetoric as if he's absolutely fabulous. He's fighting valiantly, he's smiting his enemies, his horse is leaping all over the place. There's one particular spot, it's early on in the Alexiad, when the Normans are attacking Greece and Alexius has just lost the Battle of Dyrrhachium. It's a huge loss. He's just become emperor. People think like, revolts have been happening so quickly, no one expects them to last more than a few months. And the first thing that happens is he loses this major battle against the Western Normans who are invading. And she describes him as running from the field, but running away really bravely. And he's so heroic and he fights back so well and his horse as if it were a pegasus leaps across a chasm onto a high rock which enables him to escape this completely overblown imagery about how awesome he is another example of this he's losing another battle he's fighting scythians quite a bit later and um he takes with him as protection for the army, the veil of the Virgin Mary, right? So Jesus' mother wore a veil. They had that veil in Constantinople, in the royal palace. He packs it up into a reliquary, takes it with him to the battle to be a standard so they can get the protection of the mother of God as they're fighting. But they lose anyway, right? And so they have to run away. And it's really heavy, it's hard to carry. So he hides it in some bushes, right, and then runs away, leaving it there on the battlefield, hidden by some bushes, right? This is a monumentally embarrassing story for Alexius. And it's a loss, and this is one of those losses that if it weren't for the Alexiad, we would never know what happened, 
right? We would never know that he had even fought this battle, let alone that he had lost, that he'd run away, and that he'd had this uh, object supposed to bring divine favor, which in fact brought no divine favor, and then he abandoned one of the most holy relics in Christendom, like in the bushes. Um, we know this only because Anna's story. So is she being an unbiased historian? Absolutely. We know all about this because she's letting us see Alexius's worst moment. She is airing his dirty underwear. But as he's running away, he refuses to leave the battlefield. And it's only his generals who are saying, all will be lost if you fall. I know you want to stay and fight to the death, but you have to leave. And so he very reluctantly, he begins to leave, but he keeps killing one Scythian with an arrow and hits another over the head. And then there he continues to fight as they're leaving. And he saves one of his cousins by saying, look behind you, right? And uh, saves him from getting hit. So he very, very heroically runs away. Uh, just as the Battle of Drachium is a huge loss, she lets us know all about this huge loss, but she does so while trying to make him look good. So to a modern audience, is it very satisfying? It doesn't really work because you know, we don't buy that his horse was really like Pegasus, and we don't buy that he's really some superhuman heroic guy, um, and he's leaving, right? He is running away. Um, so the rhetoric that's supposed to make him look good rings a little hollow, but it's interesting. She doesn't then get credit for being non-biased in that she told us the story. Right. So people will say, oh, Anna's a biased historian because she likes Alexia so much. She's clearly so in love with her dad. It's full of bias. Yeah. But do you do you notice that she, in fact, told us the story? Right. So she does give us the information. So by the standards that she's working with, she did give an unbiased history and that she told us all of these horrible things. Another one, um, she describes Alexius's attack on Constantinople when he's trying to take over as emperor. He's a rebel and he's attacking the city with foreign mercenaries. And it's a very bloody attack in which a lot of big part of the city is looted. A lot of horrible stuff happens. She puts all of that into the text, right? She could have just said he took over. She could have lied and said everyone was really happy to see him when they opened up the gates, right? From you know, 2020, we wouldn't know. But she says, all right, they actually looted the city and it was awful. She also mentions that this happened on Monday, Thursday, Holy Thursday before Easter. And therefore, it's sacrilegious to be fighting at all, as well as the fact that you're uh, violently attacking the capital of the empire, right? So... She does a lot to try to soften the way that she's portraying Alexius and make it seem like she's a devoted good daughter and that she really loves her father. Um, but she's also really letting us know an awful lot of stuff about him that could be used to say that, that he's a bad emperor. A lot of material that's unflattering, but it's true, right? So she's mm. really concerned to show that it's true. I mean, this is a, an irony you bring out uh, in your book again and again that um, – in this example, Anna's faithfulness to being a good historian um, is then misinterpreted by future generations of scholars who see the, you know, less than convincing rhetoric and just see that as the bias rather than right. saying, well, you know, as you're saying, she didn't have to include any of this. Now, mm -hmm. that um, that sort of interpretation and misunderstanding of Anna um, is something that's quite can be seen as quite acute because of her gender. So let's. Let's shift away from um, just the history itself and talk about her. Um, mm. uh, as far as I know, a unique position in the whole 
um, Roman historiographical field. The only woman I'm aware of who has a published history, um, which is an astounding achievement given the the two millennia we're talking about. Um, Just in terms of practical obstacles to a woman being able to write a history and get it published, can you sort of lay out some of the, the pitfalls that were in front of her? Sure. The fundamental question you have to answer when looking at this issue, it's the only history that's a history according to the the norms of historical writing that's written in Greek by a woman through all of antiquity and the Middle Ages. And I haven't been able to find even an early modern history written by a woman. Um, So I don't have any examples before the 20th century of another history that's written by a woman in Greek. So we think, what's the key question here becomes, why were women not able to write history? And if you answer that one first, then you can begin to unravel the obstacles that Anna faced. So I've already mentioned a couple of these, but in this tradition of history writing, history was written by men because it told the story of the deeds men did in war and the things that they said in politics. It's very public. It's about public commemoration of war and politics. And this history required that the historian have experience in battles and in politics because they had to be able to interpret the stories that they heard. It's best if you're there yourself, but if you weren't in actually that battle, if you can interview someone who is there from the perspective of a soldier, you could understand better what they were saying. So one of the characteristics of a good historian was that they'd be experienced themselves in politics and war, and that they also then did research. The things that they did not personally witness, they were supposed to find people who were witnesses and interview them and find documents and do a lot of work uh, talking with people who had been there to find the information. By Anna's period, historians also needed to have a great deal of education because they were writing it was really quite an artificial language that this spoken vernacular of the 12th century Greek is not much like the Attic Greek they were writing in. It was much much more like um, classical Greek prose comp that you would have in fancy colleges now or people who are learning this language in a fairly abstract way trying to compose speeches in ancient Greek that required a great deal of education. You also need education because you need to be able to tell if someone was feeding you a line of, of inaccurate history because you could see through their rhetoric, right? So rhetoricians are trying to always convince their audience that their position was correct. And if you were a well-educated historian, you could read a document and assess, yes, this is what he's trying to say, but this is the rhetorical slant and the spin, right? So the ability to recognize the spin that's being put on ideas and texts and things was part of being a good historian. I also mentioned already that historians needed to have dispassion. That is, they need to be able to put all of their own desires for who ought to win and who ought to lose, put all that stuff on a shelf and look at the facts and look at the stories they're getting from witnesses and determine what actually happened. And the huge fear of ancient historians was that they wouldn't be true to what happened, but would rather just make up what they wanted to have happen. So that fear that your passions, that your emotional engagement would lead you to side with somebody and make stuff up uh, was one of the the major fears for ancient historians. And 
historians necessarily needed to have good moral character, otherwise they just lie, right? So just the way you have to think about it as if the audience is making a decision whether or not to trust the voice coming through the historian. And if they respected that this was a man who'd been in battles, who had gone out and found people who'd been at the places and experienced the situation that's being described, that they trusted his education and knew that he had good moral character and control of his own passions, then you would trust the history, right? Now, how does that work for a woman? And suddenly it's, oh yeah, they really couldn't do that because women both in ancient Greek society and to some extent in Roman society and certainly again in Anna's society in the 12th century Roman empire, women were supposed to stay home and take care of their families and they weren't supposed to participate in politics and they weren't supposed to participate in battles and they were not given much education and they're not supposed to talk with men they're not related to. So how would you go and do research about a store, a campaign um, if you're not supposed to leave the house? You'd need to have people come to your house and they'd have to be related to them and get them to talk to you. Um, and you'd have to have a great deal of education where women, as I said, were given very minimal basic education. They were not expected to write in Attic Greek. And then as well as the need to sort of stay home and not talk to strangers, it was thought that women in this era were naturally subject to their passions, that they were the emotions were in control and the women were just do what their emotions told them to. And that's why it was important for women to stay veiled and just keep quiet and to dress modestly because they were always struggling against what was presumed to be their natural state, which was to be wild in their passions and emotions and their feelings. Right. So it goes against history writing, goes against the social rules for what a woman should be doing. It also goes against their nature and that women are naturally going to be overly loving or overly partisan and not able to do this. Um, the other thing that women really needed to be one of their most important virtues was modesty. Women needed to be demure. They needed to be deferential to masculine authority and deferential to their fathers and their husbands and the other people in, in their life and not to try to outshine them. And if you think about the description I just gave of the perfect historian, the perfect historian is extraordinarily bold in being willing to say, I'm going to figure all this stuff out and I'm going to tell you what happened. Right? All of those aspects, you have to trust my experience, trust my research, trust my education, trust my character. In convincing their audiences of that, those historians were always boastful. Right? And so the problem, the balancing act of convincing your audience that you're awesome enough as a moral person to write a history um, and convincing them that you're not really a jerk because you're full of yourself was always tricky right, for a lot of different historians. But for Anna, that becomes an extremely difficult problem because anything that she could do to say, oh, actually, I am educated. And well, I did talk to generals. Well, some of them are my uncles, right? She's trying to, to switch that line between um, talking about politics and staying home, staying at home or in her proper domestic space. All that was extremely difficult for her to make that case without then seeming arrogant, right? And so whenever she sticks up for herself, she has to backtrack and make herself seem more modest. So you're, you're hinting there at some of the, um, yeah. 
the strategies she used to to overcome this can you elaborate on some of them uh, maybe um we should uh, go back to something you mentioned earlier which was this these um weeping and wailing over mm -hmm. uh, dead relatives what was the thinking behind those passages yeah once you find the major impediments that prevented women in general from writing history you can realize that some of the oddest things about Anna's history are the places where she's trying to anticipate those criticisms. So, in fact, for everything that I've just mentioned as a problem, she tried to counter all of those things, right? Um, so, in terms of um, the sense that um, she needs to convince people that she has the, the education to write history and that she is a good, morally upstanding person, she has to say, look, I've studied Aristotle, I've studied classical rhetoric, I have a fabulous education, which she does in her first couple of pages, right? That makes her seem then like she's really arrogant and she knows it. She knows she has to do it because otherwise no one would believe that she would have the, the capability of writing history. So she says, look, I've studied philosophy, I've had this fabulous education, here are my credentials. But because she knows that everyone at that point is saying, man, this woman is full of herself, she is wildly vain and self-aggrandizing. She then flips it and she starts crying for her lost husband. And she turns herself rhetorically into a poor, lonely widow who's weeping copious rivers of tears in her mourning for her husband and for her father. And the goal of that is to make us say, oh, the poor dear. Oh, poor darling. She's so sad. The poor piteous widow. She's aiming to provoke in her reading readers a feeling of condescension and pity, right? The poor dear. So if we condescend to her and say, oh, the, the poor old widow, how sad it is, poor old Anna, that emotional response of pitying her counteracts the emotional response of resenting her for being vain and talking about how great her education is, right? Mm -hmm. So... Her, her plan was that whenever she says anything boastful about herself, she then immediately turns into the weeping widow. And she does that every single time in the text that she has a reason to transgress the normal rules for widowhood, for woman, right? Or the normal rules for how a woman should behave. She immediately switches into her crying mode. So, and again, people read this in a really, a very different way now because when she says, I studied, or I interviewed these people, or these are the reasons you should trust me, people still see her as boasting, right? But we, when we, she says, uh, I'm a really great education, and oh, woe is me, woe is me, we don't see that as connected to the boast, right? So a lot of readers read the Alexiad and think that she's arrogant, and she's vain, and she's full of herself. Although every single time that she says something boastful, she immediately humbles herself before her audience through piteous enactment of lamentation. Right? Um, and so she's asking us to feel sorry for her as, as a poor old widow. But instead, readers asked, well, that's weird. What happened to her? What's she talking about? Right? 
Um, and so another reason I think that she gets uh, goes in for lamentation is that she wants to express that she does have the normal feelings that would happen with a woman, right? So whenever she's trying to write in her um, normal, dispassionate, historical battle voice story, when she's talking about politics and war, we see that as normal history. Her readers would have seen her as acting like a man because she was talking about politics the way a man would, right? So we see that as normal history and we perceive her normal history voice and then this crazy hysterical woman voice. Whereas her contemporaries would have seen Anna talking in a voice that's appropriate to a woman and a widow. And then Anna talking strangely and transgressively with the voice of a masculine writer about politics and war. Her women weren't supposed to even think about politics and they weren't supposed to talk outside of the house at all. Right? There are people who are praised in her culture, women who are especially praised because no one ever heard them say anything. Right. So even talking is bad. And here she is talking about battles and talking about what generals said, preparing for their battles. Right. So um, to her culture, that would have been a very strange and transgressive thing for her to do. So every once in a while, she reminds everybody, yeah, I actually am a woman. And in fact, I'm a normal woman because, all right, my brother just died. And now she'll say, all right, let me pause for just a moment. And then she'll weep. And it's something clear out of classical tragedy. It's, it's a lamentation. And then she'll say, but now I'm writing a history, so I will dry my eyes and gain control of myself and go back to writing history. And she'll switch. And most of the time that she does this, she actually tells us explicitly what she's doing. It'll be an excuse me, now I'm going to cry. And then, oh yes, now I'm done. I'm back in control. Now I'm writing history. And at the end of her introduction, when she's had this extravagant bout of weeping and wailing for her, her husband uh, and for her father, which counteracts the fact that she's just said that she's read all these texts and that she's going to be writing a history and doing this crazy transgressive thing. She says, all right, now I've dried my eyes. And from now on, the, the history will become much more historical. So I'm switching into history mode and switching out of it. So I think for her contemporaries, they would have understood her as switching modes, and they certainly would have understood that the lamentation is a cry for the audience's sympathy. But for the modern audience, we don't see the plain battle history as gendered. We see that as regular history rather than as speaking with a masculine voice. And hence, as I said, she just seems crazy. She seems hysterical. <laughs> it backfires. To, to emphasize your point, um... You also point out that the people she is um, lamenting generally all lived to a good age and died of natural causes, um, exactly. which, again, a modern reader might say, oh, well, she's clearly mourning them. She seems very sincere. She seems very upset, whereas yeah. we can see, well, this is a cleverly created piece of rhetoric because yeah. um, this isn't like Ataliati's crying for Romanus Theoyenes being blinded, you know, where some yeah. great injustice has happened. She's mourning people who lived fairly uh, comfortable lives in most cases. Absolutely. They all died old of natural causes. So I think even her contemporaries knew that this wasn't expressing an actual raw emotion. Right? They were respected that as a, a rhetorician, she was performing lamentation. 
And I think they understood why she was performing lamentation and what emotion that was supposed to get from them. Um, but for modern readers, the assumption is she must be lying because look, her parents died in their seventies, like 20, 30 years before she's writing. She's not really busting a gasket, you know, over their deaths. So she must be lying. And then, I mean, to anticipate slightly, it's an immediate pivot. She must be lying. Why is she lying? Why is she hysterical? And then the story that she wanted to murder her brother to become empress and was disappointed her whole life and embittered through everything. Um, that story then becomes the explanation. Aha, she's not really mourning the death of her father. She's really just pissed off that she never got to be empress. So hmm. it's really anger. So they take the vehemence of the emotion at face value, right? We're the ones who think that this is really an expression of emotion, but we just don't believe the cause of the emotion. We're not willing to say she's mourning these people sincerely, but we take there's something really wrong. She's really agitated. It must be anger at her failure to rule, right? And it's it's our assumption that she really wanted to be a Cersei Lannister, right? And just... <laughs> Um, take over and have power at any cost. And that's really emotionally satisfying to us in our culture, at least it has been for a long time. And that's why we love that story. Um, and then we use that story to interpret all the other evidence and it keeps on rolling. Well, let's um, conclude with that. We've, mm -hmm. we've set up this sort of challenge, all these challenges she had to overcome in her writing to be. I'm actually going to cut off our interview there. As you just heard, Anna is often remembered today as power-hungry because of events surrounding the succession from Alexius to his son John. Professor Neville deconstructed these events for us to explain what seems to have happened. But since those events are well in the future, uh, from our perspective, I've decided to save the rest of that part of the interview for when we get to the end of Alexius's reign. So for now, I will just say thank you again to Professor Neville for coming on the show. She's done a wonderful job peeling back centuries of misunderstanding about Anna's text and helps us read her on her own terms. Next time, we will begin to read her history for ourselves as we return to 1080 AD and watch as Alexius joins in the craze of his age, turning on the sitting emperor to try and seize the throne. To keep you occupied until then, why not check out Sam Hume's podcast, Pax Britannica. I did indeed meet Sam when I was in Boston, and I can confirm he is literally a gentleman and a scholar. Uh, not only is he tackling the epic story of the British Empire, but he's also the man behind the History of Witchcraft podcast, so he is prolific. Check out paxbritannica.info or find the show wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, a whole empire run by people who sound like me. That must have been great. Mom. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.